You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, speaking of, of coronations, you know, uh, maybe some of you, now I was not among them, but maybe some of you back on May 6th, uh, per- perhaps you, uh, along with many in the world, watched the coronation of King Charles III, who at the age of 73 years old became the oldest man to ever be crowned as the king. Now, evidently, from what they say, uh, the ceremony was structured after an Anglican church service. So there was communion, and then after communion, he was then anointed with oil, um, and, then, um, and then afterwards, he, he took an oath where he vowed to uphold the law and maintain the church in England. Now, evidently, there were some 2,200 guests in attendance, and, 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 and they came from some 203 different countries. And the cost of all of this uh, was approximately some 250 million English pounds. Well, now before us here in chapter 12 this morning is another coronation. And, and, and yet, there's, there's, as we read this, there's, there's much less fanfare. Uh, there's, there's, there, there's no crowds. There's no cheering. There's, there's no paparazzi. There's no cameras. There's no celebrities in attendance. Uh, in fact, as we read this chapter, uh, the, 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 the tone in the chapter is very adversarial. It's, it's, it's very confrontational. And that's why we've titled the message, Coronation of a Contentious Relationship. So now as we pick it up in verse 1, verses 1 through 5, we first of all have Samuel's coronation speech. So verse 1, it says, And Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you've said to me, and I have made a king over you. And and, and now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And, And behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord, before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or, or, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And they said, you've not defrauded us or, or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And, and, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Now, this chapter in, in many ways kind of marks the end of the period of Judges. You, have the, you remember, we, we keep saying that the, the book of, of, of 1 Samuel took place basically at the same time of, of the day of the, the judges. So this chapter ends the period of the judges and begins a new period known as the monarchy. So we go from a time where the Bible says that, that because they had no king, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, and now they have a king. But the problem is the king is the one who's going to be doing what's right in his own eyes. And so, in many ways, Samuel was the last of the judges, and Saul now becomes the first king. And so this is kind of the official inauguration of King Saul. And so on the one hand, what we have is, is, is Samuel's coronation speech, but at the same time, it's also Samuel's farewell speech. And yet he seems to be using, his, using it as a, as, a, as a platform to set the record straight. For example, in verse 2, he starts off and he says, My sons are with you. Notice he doesn't say, My sons are with me. 
He says, my sons are with you. Why? Well, because if you remember, because they had sinned, because, because they were abusing their position in the ministry, Samuel had to, had to remove them from the ministry, which means they were no longer in the temple with Samuel in the ministry. They were now with the people. They're among the people. Meaning that many of the words that we read in this passage are not only directed to the people of Israel, but also directed to his sons because they are among the people. Now, along with that, we also notice that Samuel has kind of a a defensive tone. You know, we see he says, you know, have I taken anything from you? Have I defrauded anyone? There's no way to ask that question without a defensive tone. Have have I defrauded anyone? Have Have I taken anything from you? In fact, the, the, the key word is, is, is taken. He repeats it over and over again. Whose ox have I taken? Uh, whose donkey have I taken? Have I taken a bribe? And the people answer and they say, you have taken nothing from us. And so what stands out here is, is that even though he hasn't done anything to them, he hasn't defrauded them, they are removing him from leadership. It's like they're discarding Samuel the same way you might discard a, a, a fallen pastor, a, 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 a disgraced minister. You know, we, we hear about fallen pastors and ministers all the time nowadays, right? All these scandals, sex scandals, money scandals, and we hear about them all the time. Now, one that really takes the cake, some of you may be familiar with it, is a pastor by the name of James McDonald. Now, a handful of years ago, James McDonald pastored a, a large church in Chicago called Harvest Church, Harvest Bible Church. Large church had a flourishing ministry, nationwide radio ministry, TV ministry. They, they were just, I mean, there was a flourishing church until one day he was removed by his elders because of accusations of bullying, sexual ha- harassment, misappropriation of church funds. But then it gets even more interesting because in May of 2019, he was then accused of hiring, using the church funds, by the way, to hire a hitman to murder his own son-in-law. But wait, there's more. Like the infomercial would say, but wait, there's more. In fact, earlier this year, just, just February or March of this year, in Southern California, James McDonald uh, has, has a fender bender with, with a 59-year-old woman. And, and he gets out of, the, out of his truck, not to exchange information, but he starts beating her up. He starts beating up a 59-year-old woman, and as he's attacking her, his truck rolls backwards and hits another car. So now he runs over to his truck, tries to get in it, but now the crowd, the onlookers, they jump him. They, 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 they mob him, and they hold him until the police come. He gets arrested, they search his car, and find a stolen gun in his truck. Yeah, that's the kind of guy who should be removed from the ministry. But now what we have in this chapter is they're removing Samuel from ministry. And yet Samuel was above reproach. He says, he says look, I haven't taken an oxen, I haven't taken donkeys, I haven't taken bribes, I haven't done anything, I haven't defrauded anyone. He's, he served them faithfully for decade after decade after decade since he was a child, and now they're pulling him out. And yet, there's kind of a play on words. I say it's a play on words because he used the word take or taken. It's the same word he used back in chapter 8. Now, the, the, the play on words is this. On the one hand, they're rejecting a leader who never took anything from them. He never took a bribe. He never took, uh, you know, a donkey or this. Or that. He, he never took any. He never, he never did a single thing. They're rejecting him as their leader, and now they're about to embrace a new leader who's about to take everything. In fact, that was the theme of chapter 8. 
Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel warns them that when they get a king, their new king is going to take everything. He's going to take their sons and their daughters to serve in his army. He's going to take their sons and his daughters uh, to, 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 to be his slaves and to be his bakers, his perfumers, his gardeners. And not only will he take their sons and their daughters, he'll take their money. He'll, he'll, he'll tax their fields, he'll tax their flocks, he'll tax their income, he'll tax everything. He's saying, you know what? The theme of the new kingdom is going to be take, take, take. So they're rejecting the one who took nothing from them and they're embracing the one who's going to take everything from them. Now with that, verse 6, verses 6 through 12, we see that before we come to the king's court, we have the people's court. Some of you are old enough to remember that show. Verse 6. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness, who, 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 who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went to Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this land or in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into, into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and we have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal. Now, by the way, Jerubbaal is another name for Gideon, one of the judges mentioned back in the book of Judges. So the, the Lord sent Jerubbaal, or, or, or Gideon, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel. Samuel was the last of the judges. And delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, now this is back in chapter 11. He says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. And when the Lord, when the Lord your God was your king. Now it's interesting. He's going to recite their history, but before he gives them this history lesson, he has this interesting phrase back in verse 7. In verse 7 he says, Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord. And that word plead, it's not a word that means a beg or beseech or, or reason with or dialogue. It, it's a legal term. It's a legal term that means to, 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 to decide a case of litigation. And so it's a word that, that, that paints the picture that, that the court is now in session. It's as if the bailiff has stood up and said, please rise, court is in session. It's letting us know that at this moment, the people of Israel were on trial. This is the people's court. They were the ones on trial. Now, you know, nowadays, you know, people will like to say things like, well, you know, only God can judge me. And then back in my mind, I'm like, oh, don't worry, he will. You know, but even non-Christians, you know, they, they love to quote that famous passage out of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. I mean, even non-Christians, that's like their life verse. They know that verse by heart. Look, man, the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. Yeah, but did you know that the Bible actually tells us as Christians that we're supposed to judge? We're supposed to judge, but when we judge, just like Mike, Michael said, when we judge, John chapter 7, verse 24 says, judge with a righteous judgment. Judge with a righteous judgment. So 
when they quote Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged, you know, look, the context of Matthew chapter 7, it goes like this. Jesus goes on to say, well, when, when, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, when, he says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Love that word picture. Like, hey, man, you got a little speck in your eye. Let me help you. But you got like this big old telephone pole, blah, 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 you know, just hanging out of your own eye. And, 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 and what's interesting is, is, is the word speck and the word plank that Jesus used in the original Greek are, have the same root word. In other words, the only difference is the size, the, 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 the quantity. In other words, the idea is that, you know what, the, the, the reason I'm able to spot the tiniest speck of sin in your life is because, quite frankly, I've got so much more of the same thing in my own life. You know, and I spoke last, last month at the men's conference. I love how uh, Pastor Randy Golden put it when he spoke. He, he said, you know, it's amazing how bad my sin looks when someone else is wearing it. And so Jesus says, you know, why, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a plank in your own eye? And then Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, and he says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So first he calls him a hypocrite, the, the Greek word hypocrites. It's a, it's a term that means an actor in a, in a Greek play. These actors in the Greek plays, they would, they would hold up a mask. They'd have a mask on a stick, hold it up, they're one character, take it down, they're a different character. So he's saying, you know what, you're role playing. You're pretending you're one role, but you're really something else. You're wearing a mask. You pretend there's no sin in your life, but there's a lot of sin in your life. So he says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see more clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, if you notice, Jesus is not saying that you're not to deal with sin. Jesus is not saying that you're not to confront sinful behavior. He just says, you know what? First, remove the plank from your own eye. You know what he's saying is, is this. He's saying, you know what? He said, if, if, if you're going to deal with sin, just make sure that the very first sinner on your list is yourself. Start there. Before you start, you know, specs, deal with logs. Deal with planks. Deal with telephone poles. So now again, Samuel. He's letting the people know that, that, the, that the people of Israel are on trial. But he's already established that he himself is above reproach. He's, he, he's established that, that he hasn't taken anything. He hasn't defrauded anyone. He hasn't wronged them. If anything, they have wronged him. And so in a sense, he's established that he's taken the plank out of his own eye. He's above reproach. And so now having removed the plank of his, out of his own eye, he's now going to deal with their splinters, their specks. He lets them know that they're on trial. But, but what are the charges? Well, they're on trial for rejecting God. So he, he establishes that they have this, this pattern, this long history of rejecting God. They rejected God back in the days of Moses. Then they continued to re reject God in the days of the judges, whether it was in the days of Gideon or, or Barak or Jephthah. And now here they are almost 400 years later, and they're still rejecting God. That's what they did when they said, you know what? We don't want a prophet to lead us. We don't want God to lead us. We want to be led by a king. So this long history of rejecting God. It's been well said that the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. They kept repeating the pattern. Rejecting God, rejecting God, and rejecting God. And that's why, as they picked up in verse 13, 
Samuel is going to give them a sign, but it's a sign of judgment. Verse 13, and now behold the king whom you have chosen. For you have asked for, and behold, the Lord your God sent a king over to you. If, verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you will know uh, and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. There's a couple things happening. Number one, you need to keep in mind, first of all, that, that the nation of Israel was the only nation on the face of the earth that, 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 that God made a covenant with. They were the only nation that, that he was in a covenant relationship with. Now, the, the terms of the covenant, or if you would, the terms of their contract included a series of blessings and also a series of cursings. Read about this in the book of Leviticus, for example. For example, if, if, if the people, uh, God tells them, if, if, if they were faithful, if they obey, then God will bless them. He'll, he'll bless their land. He'll, he'll bless their harvest. He'll bless their flocks. Uh, he'll, he'll protect them. But if the people are unfaithful, if they disobey, then he's no longer going to bless the people. He's no longer going to bless their families. He's no longer going to bless their herds, and he's no longer going to protect them. He'll not, only, uh, not only will the land dry up, but, 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 but they'll be taken captive by their enemies. So now Samuel kind of rehearses the, the, the terms of the contract. And now having re rehearsed the terms of the covenant, it's interesting, he says in verse 17, he says, is it not the wheat harvest today? He says, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Now to quote the great theologian Stevie Nicks, thunder only happens when it rains. <clears throat> it's a true story. Now, it's interesting, the timing of this statement. The timing, notice he says, is it not the wheat harvest? Now, why is that interesting? Well, the wheat harvest takes place at the end of May and the beginning of June. The end of May, beginning of June. Well, why does that matter? Well, because in Israel, even today, in Israel, uh, the end of May and the beginning of June are by far the hottest and driest times out of the entire year in Israel. It never, I repeat, never rains at the end of May and the beginning of June. The rainy season in Israel is during the wintertime. And, 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 and so harvest season, you know, for, for it to rain during the harvest season at the end of May, beginning of June, that would be very unusual. It, like I said, it never happens. In fact, it's so unusual that Proverbs 26 verse 1 says, As snow in the summer and rain in the harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. It was so well known that it never rains in, at the end of May and beginning of June. It actually became a proverb. And so Samuel, when he's praying that it's going to rain in the harvest, the wheat harvest, when he's praying it's going to rain at the end of May, beginning of June, and then all of a sudden God instantly answers his prayer right there on the spot. And, it, and you, know, you might say Samuel prayed up a storm, and all of a sudden all buckets just, just, just start pouring. I mean, that was a miracle. 
Kind of reminds us uh, of, of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. You know, where, where first we read that, that as a sign of God's judgment against Ahab and, and Jezebel, because they were leading the nation into idol worship, as a sign of God's judgment, Elijah prayed for a drought. And there was a drought for the next three and a half years. Then after three and a half years, then God tells Elijah to pray for rain. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 42, he prays for rain. He says, please, oh God, let it rain. He sends his servant Gehazi to go out and ch- take a look. Gehazi comes back and he says, what do you see? He says, well, I see a cloud about the size of a man's hand. Now, I'm not a meteorologist, but there's not going to be a lot of rain coming out of that cloud. So he gets back down on his knees and he keeps praying and he keeps praying and he keeps praying. And the more he prays, the bigger the cloud gets. And then all of a sudden, all El Nino broke loose. And so now, as Samuel prays, for rain during the most impossible time for it to rain, the harvest season, the hottest time of the year, and, and all El Nino breaks loose, it was not only a miracle, it was a sign. A sign of what? A sign of God's judgment. It was a sign that the people had sinned against God by rejecting God and asking for a king. And that's why, as we pick it up in verse 19, that we say that the coronation of Saul in many ways was the coronation of a contentious relationship. Verse 19, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to to the Lord your God, uh, that, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord your God will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only... Fear the Lord and and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So the chapter closes on uh, on a dark note, an ominous note. As he says, but if you still do wickedly, you'll be swept away, both you and your king. Now we notice the word if. It's It's conditional. If you do this, then this is what's going to happen. Now, actually, in context, this ties back to verse 14. It's all part of the same thing. So we go back, verse 14. Uh, Samuel says, if, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and your king who reigns over you shall follow the Lord your God, it will be well says, you know, if, if you obey, if you're faithful, God will bless you. But then in the very next line, verse 18, he says, he says but if you don't, God is going to be against you. And then he sums it all up in, in, in verse 25 by saying, but if you still do wickedly, you'll be swept away, both you and your king. In other words, God, God will take you from the land. He'll remove you from the land. He'll allow you to be captured by a foreign enemy and you'll become their slaves. Now, what we have here. By, by, by this conditional word if, the use of this word if, this is covenant language. This is covenant language. You see, it was the same language that God used back in Leviticus when he first made a covenant with the nation of Israel back in the days of Moses. You know, for example, back in Leviticus chapter 26, 
where, where, where we, we read nine different times, God tells the people, he says, if you do this, or if you do that, then 24 different times God says, then I will do this, and I will do that. So these conditional terms. And so in the book of Leviticus, we see that, that God promised that as long as the people were faithful and obedient, God would provide, God would protect, and, and God would be faithful to them. But if they were unfaithful, well, then the land was going to dry up and they would be conquered by their enemies. So then as Samuel rehearsed over and over and over again in the days of Judges, they kept sinning against the Lord. They kept rejecting God again and again and again. So God, again and again, would hand them over to their enemies. And now here we are on the day of, of the inauguration of their new king, and now God decides to make a new covenant. It's a new king. It's a new time. And now there's a new covenant. What's the new covenant? He now says, if you and your king are faithful, then I'll bless you. But if you and your king are, are unfaithful, disobedient, I will sweep both you and your king out of the land. I will allow you to become captives to another kingdom. And by the way, that happened on 586 B.C., where we know that, that after years and years and, and generations and generations of, of, of unfaithfulness by the people, where, where king after king after king led the people into idol worship. And finally God had enough, and God said, okay, that's it. And he allowed them to be invaded by the kingdom of Babylon. Now those who were not slaughtered in the, in, in the invasion were hauled off and became slaves to Babylon for the next 70 years. And so what we have here is, is that as the people are coronating a king, God's inaugurating the terms of a new covenant. And, and he's telling them that, that not if, but when they break those terms, God will be the one to deal with them. It may not come right when they think it's going to come, but he'll be patient. God is always patient. He'll give them time to repent. But sooner or later, God will be the one to deal with them when they break the terms of the covenant. And this is why we call this the coronation of a contentious relationship. And yet in the midst of, of, of all this contention, is God saying, you know what? If you do this, then I'm going to do that. If you do this, then I'm going to do that. And in the midst of, of all this contention, we cannot forget that Samuel is caught up in the middle of it all. In fact, we know that Samuel was the one who felt rejected in the process, Earlier, we read in, in earlier chapters that God had to tell him, look, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So Samuel's caught up in all this. And now, after the people hear the terms of the, of the, of the new covenant, they're coming and, and, and they're like, you know, Samuel, pray for us. And his response is interesting. He says in verse 23, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Now think about this. On the one hand, Samuel had been deeply hurt by these people, rejected by these people, betrayed by, by these people. I mean, he, he poured his life out into serving these people. He served faithfully for decade after decade after decade, ever since he was a child. And now they, they basically just disregarded him like yesterday's trash. <clears throat> and yet despite the rejection, despite the hurt, Samuel says he, he considers it sin not to pray for them. Despite what they've done to him, he considers it a sin not to pray for them. Listen, let me ask you, how many of you have been hurt by someone? 
Some of you are brave enough to hold your hands up. Others of you? We know. How many of you have been betrayed by someone? We all have, right? How many of you wish the Bible said something like, you know what, stick it to your enemies? How many of you wish the Bible said something like, you know what, give the finger to those who curse you or, or to him who slaps you on the cheek, you know, give him the right hook? Well, Samuel reminds us to pray for those who hurt you. And, and ultimately, Samuel reminds us that, that ultimately, they are God's to deal with, not yours. Samuel wasn't going to be the one to drive them out of the land. Samuel wasn't going to be the one who, got, who, who had, to, to, had to deal with them. They were God's to deal with. Reminds us of Romans chapter 12, verse 19, where, where we're told, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Like a t-shirt I saw yesterday on, on, online that says, Let God deal with them, because if I deal with them, I'm going to jail. How about this? Rather than pay back, how about pray back? Leave them in the hands of God. Speaking of Romans, Romans chapter 12 goes on and it says in Romans 12, 20, it says instead, if, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If, if they thirst, give them something to drink. And in so doing, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. <clears throat> Some of you read that and you're like, burning coals? That sounds pretty good. Tell me more about that. Okay, I will. You see, keep in mind, in that culture, fire basically was, 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 was critical. I mean, fire literally kept you alive. You cooked with it, it you, you warmed your house with it, so literally, if, if your fire died out, you might die. It was a matter of life or death, which was why in that culture, that if your fire went out, even if it was in the middle of the night and their whole neighborhood's asleep, it, it, was, it was critical in that culture, it was considered a, a, a critical emergency. So much so that no matter what time or day, you would go to your neighbor, you would wake them up, you would tell them your situation, and they were required by law, essentially, to give you a coal from their fire, an ember from their flame. Because it was a matter of life or death. And so giving a coal from your fire was an act of neighborly love. But now, it's also known that if you just give them one ember, one little coal, uh, then there's a good chance by the time they finally do get back to their house, it would have grown cold. It would have died out. So you usually, usually give them more than one so that all the embers can keep each other alive and, and keep the fire burning. Now, again, we, we've all seen pictures in the Middle East of how they carry heavy loads. You know, we see, we see these Middle Eastern pictures where they, they carry you know, huge baskets or, or, or jars or these huge heavy loads on their head. And so when it says you'll heap burning coals on their head, the idea is that you, you went above and beyond. You didn't give them just one coal like the law would, would, would demand. Instead, you went above and beyond. You gave them so much, they had to carry it in a huge container, and it was so much, they had to carry it on their head. But he says, in so doing, you'll heap burning coals of shame on their head. So they, you know, I mean, they were the ones who attacked you. They were the ones that, 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 that took advantage of you. They slandered you. They gossiped about you. They, 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 they wronged you. And now they're in their time of need, and, and frankly, you should be rejoicing. I mean, frankly, you, you, you should be gloating about their misery. And yet, instead of rejoicing in their suffering, gloating over their misery, instead, you're helping them. And there's a good chance they start reflecting on all that they've done to you and after all the things and how they treated you and what they've said about you, and here you are helping them. And it's to their shame. 
So you leave them in God's hands. Now listen, some of you are looking at me like, yo, that's, that's a great sermon. That's great and everything, but I mean, what do you know about this? I mean, you're a pastor. Everybody likes you. <laughs> yeah, right. Listen, we've all got something. We've all got someone who's hurt us. We've all got someone that's betrayed us. We all, all have someone we need to deal with and forgive. My list is a little lengthy. We'd be here till next week or so. So I won't share the whole list, but I will share one. One of, one of the harder ones in my life was when I was 10 years old. When I was 10 years old, my, my mother had a live-in boyfriend. His name was Arthur Gramillion, Art Gramillion. One of the worst human beings on the face of the planet. He was, he was a woman beater, a, a, a child beater, and, a, and, a, and a, a raging alcoholic. So one night he comes home from a, a, another drunken stupor at the bar. He comes in and, and wakes me up and says, you left every light in the house on. And I was instructed because of the kind of neighborhood we lived in to always leave one light on in the house to make it look like somebody's home when I'm home alone, which was like every day. So I come down, there's just one light on, but he tells me to turn all the lights off, so I turn that light off. Now it's completely pitch black, and so he grabs me, and he's like, oh, smart Alec, huh? And he spends the next hour, literally, no exaggeration, next hour beating me, solid. Rings on his hands, and he's just punching and punching and punching. I'm 10 years old. By the time he's done with me, my entire left side of my face is just, is just completely swollen, like three or four times its normal size, huge black eye, broken nose, lips swollen to where I can't close or open my mouth, cauliflower ear, bruises up and down all over my body. The only reason he stopped beating me is because he was beating me so long and so hard, I wet myself. Then finally, he, he, he takes me to the corner, puts my nose in the corner up against the wall, but actually tells me to keep it one inch from the wall. If I twitch, if I move, then, then, he, then he says, it's not going to be well for you. So anytime I would move, which was a lot, I mean, I'm on my knees on a, on a, on a brick floor, and so uh, he just, every time you'd move, he'd smash your face into the wall. This kept up for another hour. So finally, the next day, I go to school, looking like I've been jumped by a gang, and they see all this, and they call the police. I end up in yet another foster home, one of many. And, and I got to tell you that, you know, I mean, I, I had sustained a lot of beatings up until this point. I've been beaten a bunch of different times, but for, for some reason, that night, something snapped. That night, I, I, I was filled with rage. I was filled with anger. I was filled with long-term bitterness to the point that I made it a vow that, that, that I would pay him back. In fact, at that time, I, I had a copy of Muscle and Fitness magazine, and on the front cover was Arnold Schwarzenegger, Arnold, and he's on the front of the cover. I also had a copy of a magazine called Taekwondo Times. Bruce Lee was on the cover. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to get as big as that guy, and I'm going to get as bad as that guy. And when I grow up, I'm going to find Arthur Gramillion, and I'm going to beat him within one inch of his life. I'm going to beat him like he beat me. Beat him like he's never been beat before, like a drum. Beat him to the point that he, he feels like he's going to die. He wished he could die. I'm going to make him beg me to put him to death, and I'm going to leave him in his misery. That was my goal. If you were to ask me, what do you want to be when I grow up? I was going to be a vindictive, revenge-seeking person who, who made art pay. That was my passion for life. And then something happened. Jesus Christ came into my life, changed my life. And he took that hard heart, he took that bitter heart, he took that angry heart, and he gave me a new heart. And in time, I forgot all about Arthur Gramillion. In fact, I began to start to think, you know what, if I ever bumped into him, I'd share Jesus with him. Because if anybody needs Jesus, that guy needs Jesus. Long story short, I didn't have to deal with art because evidently God did. As I found out, he ended up, you know, crossing the wrong people, drug deal gone wrong with the cartel, ended up getting murdered. Supposedly, they, they, they sent a finger of him in, in a box to my mom to confirm that he had been put to death. 
We let God deal with them. We leave them in God's hands. Samuel reminds us that they're God's to deal with. But Samuel reminds us that it's not about payback, it's about pray back. In fact, Samuel says it's a sin not to pray for them. Father, we, we lift up those who have hurt us. We pray for those who've harmed us. We pray, Lord, that as you have changed us, if you, as you have saved them, you can do it for them. As, as you've changed us and renewed us and transformed us, you can change them. So we pray that the same God that set this captive free would set that captive free. And Lord, if we can't pray that, then we pray that you would, you would start to deal with the sin that we're still struggling with in our heart. Cleanse us from the unrighteous anger. Before we start dealing with specks, help us to deal with this log. That's our heart's desire in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.